Hi. A preamble to this episode, because it hits a little closer to home for me than usual. I spent a decade of my life working at two comedy clubs in San Francisco, the two big ones nowadays anyway, bartending and cocktailing, and a good portion of that time I was living in Alameda and was the mother of a young child. And now I live not too many blocks from one of the houses I'll be talking about. I jog past it as part of this new life of mine. And so I understand what it means to move from one neighborhood to another, really to move to a better neighborhood. It's not just about money. To go from instability to something approaching security and roots, the difference that makes a home. So bear with me if I put a little of me into this one. And speaking of which, a special thank you to the old comic friends who contributed to give some new life to some classic old punchlines. You guys are the best. So let's do it. Thank you for coming back. I'm Angeline Smith, and this is Town. I know this drive, this drive across a dark bridge above the bay. The cars move fast beside you, passing you, and then you move ahead. It's 2 a.m., sometimes 3 or later, depending on how the night went, what the crowd was like, who was on the bill. It's a completely different world from your day life with the housework and diapers and conversations with other mothers in the schoolyard, trying to remember what mothers are supposed to sound like, walking that line of say this in the morning, say that at night. It's an alter ego life of drinks and murmuring crowds, bouncers, the energy of a room full of people that have all descended into the space, loaded down with their anticipation of what will or will not be given to them, some already literally loaded, ice clinking in glasses in a dark room. It would have been smoky back in her day. And the push and pull of an audience that gives laughter like a gift or withholds it like a taunt. The nights are late and full of energy, and they are different in every way from the days that are so full of tasks, and no one knows that you are someone else at night. You are just the daytime you to them. The bridge that I would drive 50 years later looked different. Don't get me wrong, it was still the dark old relic of her time. But it was different from 1955, when the bottom tier was still reserved for rail tracks and buses. She would have driven eastbound across the top deck, the brisk wind creeping in cracked windows cracked to keep her awake. And I can tell you from experience, this drive across that long, dark bridge is like a doorway from one life to the other. And somewhere within the Yerba Buena Tunnel, Cinderella's carriage turns into a station wagon, and then suddenly you're just a mother again. Unless you decide to keep going. To go as far as you can go. She did. She was born Phyllis Ada Driver in the summer of 1917, a summer of racial violence, a summer on the eve of the October Revolution in Russia, and the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic just a few short seasons away. 
just three months before she was born, the United States had finally abandoned its long-held neutrality and declared war on Germany. Her father, Perry Driver, he would be in no danger of being called up, though. He was old. Like, grandfather age old for the time. He was 55. And her mother, Frances Driver, nay Ramshi, she was a gray-haired 38-year-old when she became a mother for the first and last time. Everyone in Phyllis's family would be ancient. Her father was not only old, but the 11th of 12 children, one of the youngest in his family. Her aunts and uncles would be in their 60s and 70s. Phyllis's grandfather would have been 100 the year she was born had he not already been really, really dead. And yet, both Frances and Perry, the old mother and the still older father, they had a sense of humor. I mean, it may not have set the modern world on fire. We're talking about a life insurance salesman and his extremely religious wife in the 1910s in the Midwest. So it was probably not exactly a night at the Apollo, but they appreciated the humor in things. And they passed that down to their daughter. Phyllis would get her mother's feistiness and her father's sunny embrace of people and ability to keep a conversation rolling, and a sense of humor from them both. And once all that synthesized with a bit of her own life experience, it would result in something altogether new, something fresh and wildly entertaining on a national stage. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. She hasn't even met Sherwood Diller yet. She would spend her childhood in Lima, Ohio, where her father sold insurance and also owned a farm out in the country. He was a car person and a handshaker rather than a hugger, both qualities he'd pass on to his daughter, qualities that she herself would be remembered for, and indeed a car would actually be responsible for one of her more memorable characteristics. In 1926, at age nine, little Phyllis would climb into the front seat of her parents' Model T and start it up. By the time she got it to stop, or rather a large post got it to stop, her nose would be broken and her distinctive look would be locked in, at least until late 1971 when she decided to make some major adjustments, this time via surgeon rather than a car and a post. But already, when that Model T was careening out of control back at age nine, already at that point she was a good three years into the piano lessons that would dominate her childhood. Although, by her own account, most of the appeal was actually the spotlight that came with it. The reward of all those lessons, all those hours of practice, would be the captive audience watching her on the stage. Around age 14, she also started playing the saxophone. What the hell? It meant another opportunity for an audience. Despite her unusual looks and her insecurities, she'd be accomplished and popular enough to be voted best girl dancer and most talented pupil. And what it would all amount to was after high school, she went on to the Sherwood Conservatory of Music in Chicago. This was in 1934, when the Depression was in full swing, and Chicago was just recovering from Prohibition and Al Capone and a crippling level of unemployment. Chicago in 1934 was also a city of jazz. Clubs like the Green Mill and the Sunset Cafe were hosting everyone from Benny Goodman to Cab Calloway, Billie Holiday to Adelaide Hall. This would be the same year that Downbeat magazine would be born in Chicago, with its reviews of the music suddenly offering a sort of literary legitimacy to the genre. And young Phyllis Diller, lover of music and nightclubs, she would visit them all, escaping from her tiny cell of a room at the YWCA into the closely packed rooms, absorbing the energy, the close air, the symbiotic camaraderie of audience and performers. Side note, it was not just the jazz clubs that would deeply affect her during this period, but also the concept of space, or lack of it. As an old woman, Phyllis Diller would be entranced by space. She loved expansive suites, 
and the house that she would eventually spend half a century in would be some 9,000 square feet on a property one and a quarter acre. That's over an acre in prime Brentwood in O.J. Simpson's neighborhood. They both had addresses along the same Rockingham Avenue. And this need for space would come from these early experiences. As a child, she would be forced to share her room with a boarder, only to move into that tiny cell of a room at the YWCA during her time at Sherwood Conservatory. This was followed by a number of positions as a live-in maid, then with roommates, and finally a husband and his family. She would later say that many of the world's ills could be solved if people just had more room to breathe. I think she was maybe simplifying some of the world's ills and their solvability, but it certainly was a worldview that she'd come to from personal experience. Despite her love of music and the thriving music scene of Chicago, or maybe because of the inevitable comparisons she would have made to herself between the soulful shows she was attending and her own acceptable but less inspired playing at the conservatory, after three years she would decide that she'd never be a concert pianist and transferred to Bluffton College, a liberal arts school in the middle of nowhere, and that's where she'd meet Sherwood Diller. It's pretty certain that she was missing Chicago at that point, the energy of the big city, the magic of the clubs, the promise of the lights and the tall buildings and crowds. And perhaps, despite her earlier decision that she had no future in music, she was also missing Sherwood Conservatory, because Sherwood Diller hit her like a ton of bricks. Which is pretty astonishing, because from all accounts, his personality was about that of a pile of bricks. Smart but full of his own bluster with little magnetism and almost no motivation to actually do or finish much of anything. Despite all of that, the one thing he was able to do was impregnate 22-year-old Phyllis. They would elope to Covington, Kentucky, and isn't that an impressive sentence, but luckily they'd find their way back to Bluffton, to a house on Cherry Street, where they would live with Sherwood's mother and sister and where their son Peter would be born in September of 1940. They'd remain there until America's entry into the Second World War took them to Ypsilanti, Michigan, outside Detroit, where Sherwood would find work at the bomber plant, staying on for three years. In November of 1944, as FDR was being elected for an unprecedented fourth term and the war in Europe was continuing towards its now-inevitable conclusion, then would come daughter Sally. Sally would arrive with difficulties. She had trouble holding herself up. She'd be plagued by an alarming projectile vomiting, extreme needs and wants. Much later, as a young adult, she would be diagnosed with schizophrenia and would be largely institutionalized for the rest of her life, but that was later. There would be a third baby named Perry after Phyllis's father in 1945, but he would also be born with complications. A breech baby with a hand deformity, possibly blind, he would live just two weeks and that stretch of time spent in an incubator. And it would also be that same difficult year, in 1945, with the war nearing its end, that the bomber plant in Ypsilanti closed and Sherwood would be subsequently transferred to a naval air station located on the other side of the country, in Alameda, California. Their marriage at the time was hardly thriving, in addition to living with what can only be described as a difficult set of in-laws. Phyllis had also quickly become disillusioned about her husband's bluster, his personality, his unpleasantly one-sided style of lovemaking, his apparent inability to apply his big brains to any kind of successful endeavor. But they were married, and it was 1945 when women, for the most part, had few alternatives, for the most part accepted what they were forced to accept. 
And so Sherwood packed up their car with their stuff and drove across country. And Phyllis packed up their two small children, following by train a few days later, only to find that her husband had already lost that new job by the time they arrived. He'd find another new job at a foundry, and then another new job as a salesman, and then another, and another. They never lasted. It was never his fault. They were living in something called the Ensenal Housing Project at that point. This was one of three or four such housing projects that sprung up during the war on the western side of the island. Housing which was primarily meant to accommodate the sudden influx of workers at the naval base, the Ensenal Housing Project, the Chipman Housing Project, the Atlantic Trailer Park. The Alameda Housing Authority had created these in the early 40s, and they were like instant neighborhoods, complete with elementary schools, stores, churches. They were also rife with discrimination. Ostensibly meant to be close to the base, they were simultaneously meant to be tucked away from the more affluent, white areas. Most of the black population of the island would be consolidated to these buildings. This was overt act of the mayor at the time, meant to reassure the white population that he had this sudden black population explosion under control. And even within this largely already segregated community, there would be two separate waiting lists, with white applicants receiving priority. The Dillers would be the recipients of this preferential treatment, although by Phyllis's account, the buildings themselves were hardly worthy of waiting lists. Side note. Despite the fact that the naval base did not itself disappear after the war, the housing projects themselves would not last. They would stand just 10 or 20 years. By the 50s and 60s, they would all disappear so thoroughly you'd never even know they'd been there. The little two-bedroom apartment that the Dillers would live in, during a time she would later call the worst period of her life, it was in a building that was part of the Hensnell housing project. The building was an eight-unit dump on Stalker Way, with cement floors and plywood walls. Surrounded by blacktop tar and clotheslines, don't bother to look it up, the building doesn't exist anymore. That street, Stalker Way, that doesn't exist anymore. A newish public park, the Jean Sweeney open space, crisscrossed by trails for walking and biking, it now stands smack dab on top of the old Ensenal housing project. It's an improvement. The increased distance from her in-laws had not made any improvements to the Dillers' married life. Neither did Sherwood's inability to hold a job or the addition of still more children. Suzanne would arrive in 1946, Stephanie in 1948. During those first five years in Alameda, Phyllis would spend as much time pregnant as not. By the time Perry was born in 1950, this was a new second Perry because Phyllis loved her father, who had also been called Perry, and she was still wanting to give him a namesake. By that time, they would have left the Ensenal Housing Project. Things had been looking up. Well, maybe that is not exactly accurate to say. What had actually happened was that Perry, the oldest Perry, Phyllis's father, he had died. It was mid-August of 1948 when 31-year-old Phyllis was seven months pregnant with her second-to-youngest child, Stephanie. Her father had been 86. Immediately after his death, Phyllis's mother Ada would come out to Alameda from Ohio and try to get things in order for her daughter, the primary part of her plan being an attempt to get her only daughter to divorce her husband, and also talking that same daughter into sending her oldest son Peter down to live in Los Angeles with Sherwood's aunt, and also buying Phyllis a house. Nobody can say old Ada didn't have plans. This was not just a house, but a five-unit Victorian at 2032 San Jose Avenue, something which they could live in and also rent out to tenants. And so Phyllis lost her dad. She became the owner of a large house 
She gave birth. She moved her family. She welcomed her mother into the home. She sent her son off to live with his great aunt, who wasn't all that great, of course, because she was one of those soon-to-be-famous Diller in-laws. And she became a landlady, all in the space of just over two months. As it happened, old Ada would tucker herself out with all these plans. She would live just five months past her husband, dying of a stroke at Phyllis's home in early 1949, age 68. And so you can add that to that already banner year. But then, to kind of dull the pain, there would be the inheritance. 32-year-old Phyllis would suddenly be flush with $30,000, that's about $330,000 today, plus the old family farm, which would be sold for $5,000. And of course, she also had the Victorian with all its tenants. They sold that too, and bought a new house, paying $17,500 outright for a split-level house at 1841 Fremont Drive, in a good neighborhood, near a good school. This was a neighborhood so posh the streets would be named after Ivy League schools. Fremont Drive was flanked by Yale Drive and Harvard Drive and Cornell, as if to pound it into your brain that you had moved on from good old Stalker Way. Plus, they would fill the house with good furniture, and there would also be a brand new 1950 Ford Woody station wagon, back when it still had the real wood. Save for their actual marriage and family life, the Dillers were living the dream. Oldest son Peter returned from L.A., youngest son Perry had been born. Phyllis would send the kids off to that good school, which appropriately was named after an American inventor who had made advancements in light and moving pictures and sound, all of which would someday have such an influence on her own personal path. And the kids would walk to school on broad streets full of trees with other baby boomers, A five-minute all-American walk to Edison School straight out of Leave it to Beaver. Unfortunately, good old Sherwood was reliably underemployed, and the money would eventually, inevitably trickle away. There were, of course, five children to feed. And that was the point where things would really begin to change. With the help of a neighbor on Fremont Drive, after realizing there would never be reliable income coming from Sherwood, Phyllis landed a job at a newspaper, the San Leandro News Observer, as the women's editor writing the society column, such as it was, and a shopping column, incorporating humor where she could. This led to a job writing radio and newspaper ad copy for an Oakland department store called Cons, where in 1952 her unconventional and dryly funny ads led to a job at KROW, an Oakland radio station, 960 on the dial a radio station that would a few years later be rechristened KABL. In 1954, she would hit the relative big time, landing a job at San Francisco at KSFO, at that time owned by Gene Autry and the most popular station in town. At both stations, she would work with the quote-unquote world's greatest disc jockey, a man named Don Sherwood, because apparently every third person or thing was named Sherwood back in those days. And this is where we can take a moment to talk about the legend versus the reality. Later, the story would become the schoolyard, how the famous comedian had told her jokes to the other mothers who were dropping their children off at Edison Elementary School, how this legendary career had been born in amongst the hopscotch and tetherball courts, how the mothers would commission jokes from her to use in their PTA skits, how they would ask her for jokes for their own party banter, And if you were attending a gathering on Fernside Boulevard or Harvard Drive or Cornell Drive in Alameda in the 1950s, 
how debonair, how glib and fabulous all these women must have appeared at all these dinner parties for the boss, for their women's socials, the potlucks, dropping Phyllis Diller one-liners as they pass you the Waldorf salad or urged you to help yourself to more Oysters Rockefeller. What a collectively uproarious bunch the Edison PTA must have been with their resident joke writer. And yes, yes, there is truth in this. This was part of her history and her beginnings, but a stand-up act does not spring fully hatched from PTA skits and dinner party jokes. She spent five years hard time writing copy for print and radio, honing what worked and what didn't, learning that what worked in print, what might be a juicy bit of humor on the page, how it could crumble to dry dust when translated, when spoken aloud. She would get knocked around, disparaged and teased by the men at the station. Her outfits and looks made the butt of their jokes, treated like a woman, treated less than. But simultaneously, oddly, encouraged, even pushed by her husband to get into comedy. Of course, there was a reason for this. Milton Berle had signed a 30-year contract with NBC in 1951, guaranteeing him six figures a year. It was the kind of a deal that people talked about, and the sort of thing that Sherwood, obsessed with get-rich-quick schemes that required no effort on his part, the sort of thing that Sherwood Diller could get behind. Think of the possibilities. He had a funny wife. Why not her? Why not him? And here they found maybe the one thing they could agree on. Phyllis dove in. She was immersed. She studied the comedians on the TV at 1841 Fremont Drive, 15 inches of black and white showbiz university, beamed straight to their living room, and she worked at her writing. Of course, her life was not all laughs. There were still the five children hunkered down in that selfsame living room. They had hired a maid-slash-babysitter back in 1951 back when Phyllis had first gone out for work, since heaven knows Sherwood was just as ill-equipped to fulfill a role inside the home as he was outside. But it's safe to say that between them, the maid-slash-babysitter, the present if not entirely helpful dad, and the hard-working mom, they had the kids covered. I mean, this wasn't now. This was 1955, and if you've read any Beverly Cleary lately, which I recommend, God rest her sweet soul, it was a different world. Reread your Ramona books. The early ones were written in the 50s and 60s, and that mom was sending Ramona off to walk to school by herself in kindergarten. Another one of her characters, Henry Huggins, he was riding city buses by himself in the third grade, going downtown solo to the YMCA to go swimming and then back home again. Apparently, kids just got it done. Not to say that parenting still didn't take some effort, just, you know... You could send them outside for 20 hours at a time, if need be. And side note, down the Beverly Cleary rabbit hole. But we're not moving too far off topic, because she was local too. She and her husband Clarence lived in Oakland, in Fruitvale actually, just across the estuary from Alameda, when he was assigned to work in the Navy office at the Alameda shipyard in the early 40s, before they moved to Berkeley later that decade. It would be in Berkeley that she would write about Ramona Quimby, about Beezus and Henry Huggins, and where she would also write a book called Fifteen in 1956. A book which I would pick up nearly 30 years later at a school book fair, and I would be an eight-year-old in Pennsylvania in 1985, reading about a 15-year-old in Berkeley in 1956. And somehow this book would help form most of my ideas about dating for the next 10 to 30 30 plus years. 
things like the importance of owning multiple cashmere sweaters and that the ultimate goal of dating was to be given a boy's silver ID bracelet. But anyway, after Beverly Cleary's recent passing, I returned to my old copy of 15 to its very dated pages and came across a passage where the heroine, Jane, is imagining her future, where she will have a career before she eventually gets married, a career as, quote, an airline stewardess, or a writer of advertising copy for a big department store, or perhaps a job at the American Embassy in Paris, and wait a minute, what? Because apparently this job, this very same job that Phyllis Diller had in 1952, writing copy for the department store Cons in Oakland, the job that would lead her to her radio gigs at almost the exact same time Beverly Cleary would be describing it as the kind of job that girls in the pages of Mademoiselle would have, it was something glamorous on the same level as a Parisian embassy position. And so how extra glamorous that radio job would have been, and how outrageous and next level it would have been to imagine a Milton Berle level of fame, a contract, appearances on television. And with that in mind, perhaps the jokes at her expense at the radio station, the hard work, the relentless schedule and touring that would come later, with the context of those times in mind, how reasonable it might seem to go through all that if you were a woman who really needed more in order to be rewarded with fame and money and everything else that one might glimpse in a 1950s copy of Mademoiselle magazine. Of course she stuck with it. Through sheer luck one night at an Oakland jazz club, she still loved jazz, still loved clubs, Phyllis would strike up a conversation with a man named Lloyd Clark, who had connections, and he would agree to be a sort of coach-manager hybrid to her. He'd advise her to get stage experience. She would, after a fashion. A couple performances at the Presidio Hospital in San Francisco for a nearly empty ward of injured military men. Some church hall and women's club performances. And so she cobbled together an act, and to be honest, that was, apart from having to work and take care of a family, amazing. I can attest from long exposure to comedians, an act is an evolution. It can take years, especially at the beginning, to come up with a solid five minutes of material. Fifteen minutes can seem like Mount Everest. And that's in today's comedy style, where a setup may eat up half a minute of time. This was the age of one-liners, where a minute might need ten jokes start to finish. And so, down another rabbit hole here, but this is an actual one, a stairway that led into a basement where a club was. The club. The Purple Onion, which was an institution which was just then starting to be an institution. Everyone from Bob Newhart to Woody Allen, Lenny Bruce to Richard Pryor would perform there. At the time, it was still new, open just three years, a 170-seater that featured three acts a night, a comedian, a singer, and a musician who could also do patter with the crowd. But it was in the heart of the action on Columbus, in San Francisco's North Beach. City Lights bookstore, Ferlinghetti's Baby, had just opened down the street during the same time. Ferlinghetti's publishing company was just putting out its first book of poetry. This was the golden era and the home neighborhood of the Beats. Kerouac and Ginsburg and McClure and Rexroth were all in San Francisco that year. Ginsburg would read Howell for the first time to a crowd at the Sixth Gallery that fall. 
And North Beach and the Purple Onion were part of this whole scene, all the poetry and jazz and hipness. Hell, Maya Angelou was performing at the Purple Onion in 1955. And this would be exactly when Phyllis Diller would descend down that stairway for an audition having never performed in a comedy club before. Having driven the family station wagon Woody over from her neighborhood of Ivy League streets. In February of 1955, Lloyd Clark and his connections had landed her an audition with the Rockwell family, the owners of the club. She had ten solid minutes of two-liners, set up, punchline, set up, punchline, ten minutes ready to go. Thank you very much, Alameda dinner parties and PTA skits. Thank you very much, five years of radio copy and the sick ward at the Presidio Hospital. She wouldn't get the job, not immediately anyway. The Rockwell family would largely ignore her during her audition. They would be eating carry-out from Chinatown just a couple blocks away and chatting together. They already had a resident comedian. The audition was a courtesy to Lloyd. But then, just two weeks later, that resident comedian, who was unbelievably not named Sherwood something or something Sherwood, but rather Milk Cammon, he decided to take a gig in New York, and the Rockwell family remembered her act. At least a couple of those jokes must have landed. And they called her up. Can you picture it? The house on Fremont, it's 1,500 square feet. It was built in 1929, just a short walk from that good school, right off of broad Fernside Boulevard. Three bedrooms. The phone would have been bulky, heavy, rented from AT&T, frequently disconnected for non-payment. It would have sat in some central area, the family room. She had already spent hours on this phone, racking up debt with Lloyd Clark, who charged her $5 an hour for his help in developing her act, but agreed to bill her later. She would know the feel of the receiver, made of Bakelite in black or maybe white or maybe brown with a rotary dial. Operators had just started to disappear. It would have been a direct exchange. The ring of the phone, a trilling noise, three seconds of manic, high-pitched tinkling like piano keys high up on the scale. It was the sound of her career starting, the sound of a half-century of laughter beginning. The call came on a Friday, and she started Monday. Monday, March 7th, 1955, terrified and green, with 17 minutes of material, much of it musical, performing to a room largely made up of friends who had come out to support her. People who had driven from Alameda and Oakland and other places in the city. And that is a kind audience to start with, but the problem is they were so kind that they bought tickets for the second show too. Fully half of the people stayed and heard the same act, something that wouldn't necessarily bother a comedian nowadays, but which horrified her and spurred her to come up with another full set of material in record time. Within the week, she was getting rave reviews. The San Francisco Chronicle was calling her out. Her old pal from KSFO, Don Sherwood, was putting her name out left and right. And just a month later, she'd be booked to open a Freeman Markets grocery store in Alameda. That appearance would advertise her as Alameda's own comedy star. She would stay for a year and a half as the resident comedian at the Purple Onion, a residency which amounted to a sort of boot camp. Six nights a week, Sundays off, Four shows a night, although there could be more. First show was for the tourist buses. It was a relentless schedule. It was trial by fire, where hecklers who didn't like her act or her looks or the fact that she was a mother out at night would shout things at the nervous little comedian. She was only five foot one. 
Things like go home to your husband and kids as she told her jokes in the smoky basement at one in the morning. Thank you very much, sir. Try the veal. And one assumes that the 15-year-old young hero of Beverly Cleary's book might have found the reality a little less glamorous than Mademoiselle magazine made it seem. Or maybe. Many nights would be better. Many nights would have been filled with the energy of the crowd, the excitement of their laughter, the thrill of a famous audience member. But like I said, I know that drive back to Alameda late at night, so late it's more morning than night. The windows down to keep her awake, home at 2.30 a.m., the sound of the audience fading to silence as she tends to a restless child, or once memorably put out a fire caused by Sherwood's neglected cigarette on the mattress, a beer can by the bed. Of course, the situation wasn't sustainable, any part of it, actually. After some 70 weeks at the Purple Onion in San Francisco, she would be sent down to L.A. to help open a new second Purple Onion location. She would rent herself a tiny house there for four months while the family stayed behind in Alameda, except for her oldest. 16-year-old Peter had moved down to L.A. by himself, living on his own and finishing high school. She did her stint down there and returned to Alameda just in time to find that the family debts had finally caught up with them. Sherwood was still bringing in next to nothing, and none of their bills were being paid. In late 1956, just seven years after they'd paid cash for the house on Fremont Drive, it was sold. They would send the kids to St. Louis to stay with Sherwood's mother while Phyllis and Sherwood went on the road. When they came back for another engagement back at the Purple Onion, they would find places, small places, dumps really, in the city. Their focus had fully changed. Good schools and tree-lined streets were less important than being close to the club. And really, for the next few years, it would be very transient, which, if you think about it, for a woman that would strike a national chord based on an act all about domestic life, about the trials of domestic life, it's a bit ironic, but pretty much a given, that that very act would bring that domestic life to a halt. Her first show had been in 1955. Oldest son Peter at that time was 15, soon to head to L.A. on his own. Sally was 11, Suzanne and Stephanie 9 and 7, and Perry, the youngest, just 5. By three years later, in 1958, the kids were basically permanently ensconced in St. Louis with their grandmother and aunt as Phyllis and Sherwood traveled around from venue to venue as they set up shop in a fleabag motel in New York. This was when Phyllis was on the rise, of course, supported by Bob Hope and booked into clubs like the Blue Angel and the Bonsoir in New York. The Hungry Eye back in San Francisco, the Crescendo in L.A. She started getting TV gigs. Jack Parr became a huge fan and had her booked on The Tonight Show regularly. And though it was not perhaps the barren wasteland and comedy for women that you might suppose, comedians would often appear on Jack Parr's Tonight Show. But Phyllis was different. She, as it turned out, was beginning to ditch the musical parts of her act, instead doing what traditionally had been a male stand-up style act. Most female comedians at the time had musical gimmicks or were partnered up with men. Gracie Allen had her George Burns, and Mira had her Jerry Stiller. Even the cutting-edge and immensely talented Elaine May, who would later be the amazing screenwriter on such films as Heaven Can Wait and Primary Colors, and somewhere in between would be the less amazing screenwriter on Ishtar, even she had Mike Nichols at her side. Carol Burnett was also doing this kind of straight, traditionally male comedy, and to be honest, will always be closer to my personal preference of comedy. 
And a few years later, Joan Rivers would start making waves, but for that time, Phyllis was something special. And you can't deny her bravery, her tenacity, and the novelty of her. And especially because of her refusal to embrace that 50s ideal of motherhood, decades before Roseanne Barr came on the scene, her whole act was a rejection of the idea that a wife and mother was or should be perfect. Her jokes complained of her useless husband, who she called Fang in her act, and who both was and wasn't Sherwood. Fang and Sherwood were both useless, but at least Fang was interesting about it. Her act was self-deprecating, and her jokes her cooking was terrible, her parenting unsuccessful, her looks unlovable, her house a mess, her husband unenviable. It would seem like an act meant to evoke tears, but she made it work. So much so that eventually she would set a Guinness World Record for laughs a minute at 12. That's a joke every five seconds, every one a winner. By the early 60s, the money started to roll in. Eventually, in 1962, she would buy a house outside St. Louis for the kids to live in, though she was still on the road. Three years after that, she'd buy another house in Los Angeles, and that would be the house, the one that she would have for the rest of her life. One person who would not be joining her at the new Los Angeles house was actually Sherwood. Agoraphobic, prone to sham heart attacks, and having developed an aversion to bathing, Sherwood had somehow caught the attention of the Dillers' Norwegian housekeeper, starting what I can only imagine was an interesting, if not a particularly good-smelling, courtship. Phyllis, who meanwhile herself had fallen in love with actor Ward Donovan Tatum, with whom she'd been performing in a musical in Chicago, she divorced Sherwood in July of 1965, giving him the St. Louis house, the car, and an apartment building, and married Ward in October of that same year. And for the record, Ward would turn out to be a nightmare in his own way. Gay, alcoholic, he would carry a red leather booze bag with him when traveling, habitually sabotaging her act and relationships forever moody and angry at his own diminishing career. She'd filed for divorce just three months after the wedding, but reconcile one day before it went through. They'd last a very long ten years before finally calling it quits. Unlike her previous in-laws, however, Phyllis would love her new extended family, and indeed it was the Tatums who told her about that Los Angeles house for sale. A 22-room English-style house, even older than the house on Fremont, it was built in 1914 as a summer home for a senator, and located in Brentwood at 163 South Rockingham. It's actually three blocks away from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air house, and there's a bit of trivia. That show should rightly have been called The Fresh Prince of Brentwood, or The Fresh Prince of 15 Minutes Away from Bel Air. You take your pick. But I'm leaning toward the latter. Even though it would take a little speeding up of the lyrics, at least the rhyme would still work. I looked at my kingdom, I was finally there to sit on my throne as the prince of 15 minutes away from Bel Air. Anyway, Phyllis's new house would not be quite as grand as the Banks mansion. Her new abode would be just eight bedrooms, two less than the Banks, although it did have a half bathroom more. She would actually buy the house sight unseen in August of 1965 and then live there for more than 50 years. And I don't know if you have some kind of idea in your head of what it might look like if you are familiar with her act or maybe based on her wigs or her performance outfits or cackle. But it would be a classic, conservative, graceful home. A little old-fashioned, but in a good way, in a familiar and comforting way. 
definitely evoking the better architecture of the 19-teens, English style on the outside, but all early century California airiness and big windows and sprawling rooms that spill into each other. High ceilings filled with flowers and art on the walls and books. Nothing was cheap, but it wasn't flashy either. She collected Waterford crystal, pianos. She had an organ room. There would be a harpsichord in her French silk-walled bedroom. And side note, the pianos and the organs and the harpsichord, they weren't just for show. She had kept up with her playing over the years. I'd actually gotten back into it, and not just in a small way. Between appearances on Laugh-In and Hollywood Squares and The Gong Show, she would perform as a piano soloist, playing Bach, Chopin, and Beethoven, interjecting the act with comedy, but playing seriously. She would perform with over a hundred symphonies between 1971 and 1981. And that house, it had some elements of fun. She had a huge red kitchen with red brick walls and red appliances, a room dedicated to wigs that would have sent Mara Rose into ecstasies. But she also had mad taste in quality rugs. The house revealed all her parts, all the pieces of her that made her Phyllis Diller, but only the wig room and the closet of costumes would probably have looked familiar to most of her public. But the thing about that house on Rockingham would be its permanence. She would have other places, an apartment in Pittsburgh, an unassuming three-bedroom in Vegas for when she performed. But this house was the real home. She'd finally been given the chance to put down roots, and she embraced it. She would stay there until her quiet death in 2012, after which it would be sold. I don't know what the final selling price would be, but it seems to have been somewhere between 9 and 13 million. And to prove that people are the worst, two years later, a Los Angeles stained glass company would be called out to remove the 13 unique 100-year-old stained glass windows from the home just before the new owners demolished it. They had something more spacious in mind. And I'm going to be skipping a lot here, a whole career of jokes and shows and appearances. The wigs and the short dresses that showed off her legs, her appearances on Scooby-Doo, and her movies and USO tours with Bob Hope. Her dedication to the self-help book, The Magic of Believing. How she designed her own Christmas cards each year and invented her own rules for playing gin and made everybody play those rules a penny a point. Her delicious chili, her gin martinis, how she would listen to jazz while painting. Her love of Mercedes and Rolls Royces, her kind and gracious interviews as she got older. How she would always prefer handshakes to hugs, how she would cook while on the road, the phony bugs she'd put on her grown son's meals to make him laugh. How she and her kids would have endless family jokes making each other laugh, her laugh. A laugh that Rich Little would once compare to a car whose battery is going dead. How her work ethic was impressive, her memory outstanding. She would remember comedy club or theater staff, the sound man, the bartender, years after her last performance at that venue, even when meeting them in a different setting. Perhaps nothing made me like her more than the story of her instructing her staff to put together tip lists of the staffs where she performed to make sure that every name was both included and spelled correctly. Many people would receive autographed books and photos. Those that received cash would get double the going rate. And I'm going fast here, skipping through the life of a person and all the things that you can pick apart that make someone special and worthy of being remembered. 
because this is supposed to be about a house in this town and the stories here. And as far as that goes, well, a big part of the story started here, and so you want to know what happens next. The story of a housewife who decided to keep driving, who would be astonishing in her strength. Because somewhere in between that first show, in 1955, and her retirement in 2002, which would prompt flowers from the Rockwell family, who had put down their Chinese food that one time to listen to a couple jokes, they sent her flowers. They remembered. Between that first show and the last, she would become one of those performers who lived and died by the saying, the show must go on. She would go on in the midst of divorce, in the midst of arguments and fatigue and sickness. She would go on immediately after a telephone call where a stranger had told her he'd kidnapped her teenage daughter, Stephanie, not knowing if it was real or if the caller was just another quack, another crazy, not knowing if her daughter was fine, and only finding out after the show ended that Steffi was indeed asleep at home. Even at the very end of her career, when she could have just phoned it in or canceled, this was long after she had divorced first Sherwood and then her second husband Ward, when she had finally found herself a good man, a man named Bob who was a lawyer and a gentleman who would not be threatened by her fame, but impressed and excited by both her work and her. And they would spend a good ten years together with the emphasis on good. When Bob would collapse at the airport as they were on their way to one of their Caribbean cruises, which she had been working, the cruises loved her. And the show would go on, she would go on, though Bob would pass away the next day. And she would get the call just before the show that night. And she went on. She kept driving. By the end of her career, Phyllis Diller would have 52,569 jokes filed onto typed index cards, which occupied 51 drawers. It was a file cabinet which would be donated to the Smithsonian eventually. And it would be a crime to not include some of them here, with the assistance of a few people that have also graced the stage of the Purple Onion. I'll get things started. I'm Angeline Smith. And here's my Phyllis Diller joke. Some bad things have been happening. A pervert called me five times. Collect. And that damn fool won't even tell me where he lives. <laughs> That's just messed up. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but it also got me laughing so hard this morning. Uh, oh, I know. Okay, one more, just because this is also one of my favorites. Um... If your house is really a mess and a stranger comes to the door, greet him with, Who could have done this? We have no enemies. <laughs> That's actually usable. <laughs> All right. My name is Joe Bartnick. Hold your applause. Uh, my Phil and Ziller joke is, at my age, my back goes out more than I do. Uh, I'm Greg Edwards. Here are some which you talked about because I only know Phyllis when she was an old lady. Because you know, um, well, anyway, here's her old lady joke. She said, uh, You know, you're old when your walker has an airbag, uh, you know, you're old when your sexual fantasies include Strom Thurmond, uh, you know, you're old when 
uh, if someone says, I like your alligator shoes, and you don't have shoes on. Uh, yeah, I love her one-liners. Uh, she was great. Uh, Phyllis Diller. Okay, Kurt Weitzman. I was the world's ugliest baby. When I was born, the doctor slapped everybody. My thanks to Greg Edwards, Kurt Weitzman, Joe Bartnick, and Tony Diamco for their contributions to this episode. All research, production, and art for Town Podcast have been done by me, Angeline Smith. Music by Vladimir Pyodnik, Lance Conrad, Pete Jinks, and James Grant. Thanks for listening. Keep well. <laughs>